Um, if you're a visitor today, I want to thank you for coming to Crossroads. I know we have several over here, but there are always some visitors coming and uh, tell you that as a church, we, um, we have core values like all churches ought to have, and uh, central to them is our love for the Word of God. We, we honor the Word of God. We love worship. We love people, every individual. We love families, and we support families, and of course, relationships. So right after service, relationship gets helped out by coffee and cookies and just hanging out together, and, and we invite you all to do that. So um, I love the book of, of Proverbs, so we'll just get a proverb quickly. Proverb 24, verses 1 and 2. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. Okay. So I was reading about one guy's description about how big the universe is, and um, he came up with this analogy to help you understand it. If it costs you one penny... To travel a thousand miles, be pretty good mileage. One, one, one penny to go a thousand, it costs you about, what, 20, 25 cents a quarter to go around the world. Great, that's a good deal. If you want to go to the moon, $2.39. If you want to go to the sun, 930, but that'd be a one way trip. Okay, that wouldn't be a good deal. Based on that same ratio of a penny for a thousand miles, if you wanted to go to the nearest star, it's about 260 million dollars, a little more of expensive. And I was thinking about these trips, you know, if you were going to go to a trip around the world or go to the moon, or if you were going to take your family and go camping at Mount Rainier for four or five days, you would uh, certainly think about it and make some preparations, right? You'd, you'd think that through, um, and maybe you'd have some of the typical questions that you'd think of, you know, what do we pack? What's the weather going to be? Did you bring the stuff for s'mores? The, in my family, that's a pretty important thing to make sure. I mean, but you'd check your, your, your calendar, you'd clear your schedule, you'd save up some money, maybe you'd read up in advance on some of the hikes you were going to take, and you'd do all this preparation just because of four nights away up at Mount Rainier. And, um, you know, here's my point. I mean, even though we make all kinds of preparations for a one- or a two-week summer trip, I think a lot of people make absolutely no consideration for the ultimate journey that they're going to make, and that's the journey to eternity. There's a guy named J.B. Phillips. He's a famous, um, he's, he's a famous translator, uh, translated Bibles, and um, preacher, and a scholar, and in his lifetime, it's said that he did over 5,000 funeral services. That's a lot, um, and, and when he would go to a funeral, he never used the phrase, the dearly departed. He just never called people who had died the dearly departed. He, he would always, always refer to them as the one who has arrived. Great, great perspective. You know, one who has arrived. And the obvious, the obvious question is, where did they arrive to? What's it like for that person? Where are they now? I mean, for us, the question is, that we would ask ourselves is, where will you arrive? Where are you going to go? I heard this um, about these, these two neighbors, this pastor and a salesman who lived next to each other, and at the same time that the pastor happened to die and pass away, the next-door neighbor went on a business trip to Arizona, and uh, when he got there, just thinking about it, being a thoughtful husband, he dropped a postcard in the mail to his wife, and, uh, but when the postcard arrived, it was delivered to the wrong mailbox. Instead of going to his wife, it went to the wife of the pastor who had passed away. And um, she opened the mail and she was pretty shocked to read, arrived safely, but, but the heat here is awful. <laughs> so, <laughs> so 
Immediately after you die, while people here on earth are figuring out things like, you know, what's going to happen at the memorial service, who's going to read the eulogy, and what are the flowers going to be, and what are the songs going to be, while all that's going on, what are you going to be doing? I mean, you will be very conscious, the Bible teaches. You're going to be aware of what's going on. Are you going to be rejoicing at that moment? Are you going to be somehow seeing God's throne and with all these angels and all of these other saints that have gone before you just being able to declare and see the glory of God and, and, and be in his presence? Is that, or are you going to be in some state of misery and, and torment? And um, I mean, in this series that I'm starting up today that I'm going to call Ultimate Journey, we're going to, for the most part, be following the pathway of a Christian who dies. Um, you know, I mean, uh, all over the way from when they die through, you know, what happens in heaven and different times and seasons in heaven, what, what that looks like. And from time to time, we will talk about what would be the contrasting situation for the, for the unbeliever. But for the no, most part, that's not where we're going to go. We're going to be following the pathway of the Christian once they pass on. And um, I, I would say, you know, I've, I've done my share of funerals too, not 5,000, I've done quite a few. And so when I'm at memorial services, I get to hear what people believe happens after we die. And it's kind of interesting. And, and um, it, you might be surprised to hear what even some believers, some Christians would say, you know, what they profess happens after, after people die. I mean, I've heard Christians say that when a Christian dies, they turn into an angel. I mean, that would certainly be in keeping with, uh, what's that Christmas movie? Um, yeah, it's a wonderful life. Thank you very much. I couldn't remember. I lost it for a moment. You know, that you, a bell rings, you get your wings, kind of a thing that Christians turn into, and poor Clarence has been 200 years, and it's embarrassing that he hasn't got his wings yet. Okay, some Christians, I don't know where you get that, um, but you can't, at a memorial service, stop and correct somebody's theology. I, I'm sorry, that's just not true. You can't really <laughs> do that. So I, I, guess, I guess God needed another angel, so he called her home. Well, you didn't know her like I knew her, but anyway, so... <laughs> Or the other thing, you know, I've heard this many times, you know, it, up here, there, he's playing golf and he's hitting the middle of the fairway on every shot. And I'm thinking, really? You know, what about for those of us who really don't like golf? Um, what do we like, the caddies or something? Or what if, you know, is that your idea of what heaven is? Or maybe your idea of heaven is getting to watch all the Fixer Upper reruns or something. <laughs> or I don't know. <laughs> some people think that after you die you go to this place they really believe that you go to this place and you work really really hard for a period of time and um, um, if you work really really hard long enough you will pay for the price of your sins and then you'll be allowed into heaven have you heard this before maybe you've heard some that somebody um, that believes that it's not true, but some people hold to that. Um, some people believe that when you go to heaven, the first thing you're going to encounter is you're going to actually encounter Peter at the gate, and he's going to pepper you with a list of questions. And if you get them right, come on in. If not, go back and study some more. I'm not quite sure where that goes. But the, probably one of the most common ideas or images about going to heaven is you're going to float on a cloud and play a harp all the time. <laughs> and 
I'm sorry, but the image of playing a harp for a million years or whatever just doesn't, doesn't do it for me. I mean, I'm really not that interested in that. So, so what's it really going to be like after the moment of passing? Do people turn into angels? Do, you know what happens to our body? Do we, do we, do we become disembodied spirits? Are we, do we enter into some kind of a soul sleep where we wait for a while until the resurrection? Do we, when do we get our new bodies? You know, I've heard something about new bodies. What are those bodies going to look like? What about a baby who dies? You know, what about babies that dies? Does that mean that baby is going to stay a baby through all eternity? I mean, these are questions. These are great questions. What, what about people who maybe live a long life and they die at an old age? When, when, when are they, does that mean they're going to have, do I, do I, if I die today, do I, everything hurts right now. Lisa and I have been working on projects lately and I'm in pain. <laughs> I mean, I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you. Is this, can I have my, my, my 19-year-old body? Back when I could eat four pizzas and still be skinny? <laughs> Man, what's, I mean, what's heaven going to be like? What are we going to do in heaven? What, are there stages of heaven? What's, you know, what about, what about the judgment? What's, what's that going to be? And what's going to be like? Is there one big judgment or is there more than one? And do Christians get some sort of a special deal? Um, those are some of the things that we're going to explore. We're going to talk about those things, and uh, I'm kind of looking forward to this. So, so today, in Ecclesiastes 3, which is where we're going to start, we're going to find some three travel tips for the ultimate journey. We're going to start there. First of all, one, we, point number one, first travel tip is we all face mortality, Okay. We're all born, born, we're all just bound by this mortality. We, we all face that. Um, but number two, I'll come back to these in more detail. Number two, but we were made for eternity. Right? We face mortality, but we were made for eternity, which causes us then to long for certainty. We, we, all of these things we are going to emerge from the text. So we're going to jump in here and deal with number one. The first, our first one, which is mortality, beginning in verse 1. And this is Ecclesiastes 3, a very familiar passage for, for many of us. Starting in verse 1. To everything there is a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from, which, from that in which he labors? Now, as we read through these first eight verses, you'll find a word in every single one of those verses, time. 28 different appearances in those eight verses of the word time. We're creatures of time. We're bound by time. You know, we've observed our world and we've figured out that it rotates around and so, you know, it rotates on its axis and so we divide that, that season or that period into time segments 
into 24-hour segments. Okay, we get that, and we divide each, each of those segments into 60 pieces, and then we take those 60 pieces, we slice those into 60 more pieces, and um, you know, some of you are timing me right now. <laughs> we live by time, right, regularly, and we make appointments, we set our alarm clocks, we keep track of our watches all day long. We're bound by time. We're creatures of time. The internet is a big waste of time, but there are some interesting things on there too. And there's a lot of articles that talk about how you spend your time. Interesting ones. So I, we're just going to assume you are all the average American, although I know you're exceptional. You're not the average American. But if you were the average American in your lifetime, here's how you would spend your time. You'd spend six months at stoplights. That is terrible. For me, it's more like six months at a slow roll. But anyway, so, okay. Just being honest with you, I know many of you don't come to a full stop 10 feet behind the stripe. Don't act so sanctimonious. Okay, all right, okay. Six months at stoplight. Eight months opening junk mail. I knew it. One year looking for misplaced objects. Yesterday, Lisa and I, are, we're building a well house. Where did I put the hammer? I don't know, but we looked for that hammer eight times, I'm sure, yesterday. Okay, two years unsuccessfully returning phone calls. Four years doing housework. Now, this is the average. Ladies, it's more than four. Guys, it's less than four. Not making any statements. I'm just telling you, four years is the average. Five years waiting in line. <laughs> 20 years sleeping, 20 years working, seven years playing, five years getting dressed. That's mostly on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Two and a half years in bed besides sleeping, five months tying your shoes. Buy slip-ons or flip-flops. Just bank that time. All of these activities just amplify this truth that we have this terminal disease called mortality. And if the Lord tarries, if he, if he waits a little longer to come back, we're going to all go on this journey, what Solomon says in verse 2, a time to die. George Bernard Shaw was fond of saying that you know, the statistics of death are very impressive. Every one out of one person dies. We're bound by time. We face mortality. And what's more, we are really not satisfied with all of this stuff we do. We're not. These activities do not fulfill us. No, we're involved in all kinds of things, but, and we enjoy them, but they don't really satiate us. They don't really quench our thirst because we have a sense that there's got to be something more than this. There's a sense down in us that says that. I'm reading this book. Um, I, I, I hesitate to ever recommend books. Um, and so I'm just telling you, I'm reading it. You might, want it. you might enjoy it, you might not. But if I haven't got to the very end, in case he says something heretical, I didn't endorse this book. Okay. <laughs> anyway, but this guy's name is Randy Alcorn. It looks like a good book. It's on the subject of heaven. And he calls the earth the in-between world. Let me read a quote to you. Earth is the in-between world. Here we are in between heaven and hell in this place called earth, in this time and space continuum, making choices as to where we will spend eternity. And we've looked today into what Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you know this book, Solomon, this author, you know, every activity, everything that Solomon, you know, searched out and got involved in and experienced, 
in the end, it just left him tasteless. He just, it wasn't satisfying. It wasn't enough. He's on this quest, and his journey through life is disappointing for him. It, it, even at points despairing. All of life's experiences, if you just keep doing them, they eventually will not satisfy. Paul even mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, if we have set our hopes on Christ in this life only, we deserve more pity than any other people. If your focus is just on while you walk this earth, you deserve pity. And I think that you and I, Christians, you know, I'm speaking mostly to Christians here, if we assume that the typical um, unsaved person wants to go to heaven. We just assume everybody would want to go to heaven. But for many people who are not believers, they, they've never really heard a good description about the place that makes them want to go there. You know, maybe Christians have given them somehow the idea that, that heaven is going to be one picking long church service. <laughs> And, you know, song after song after song. I love the songs. But, I mean, don't you think after like a thousand years? I know the song says after 10,000 years, but anyway, after a while, okay, I mean, there's just got to be a limit there. And I have to admit that at some point it just doesn't sound all that exciting, maybe even a bit boring. And I have to also admit that that's, you know, we wouldn't normally admit that because that's not culturally correct in church to say that, you know, and never-ending church service wouldn't be okay. But if that's what we paint heaven as, it may not be accurate, but it isn't necessarily appealing to people who have chosen not to go to church in this world. So, you know, we're thinking, well, if it's going to be a never-ending church service, God, is it okay if I bring my iPhone so I can... <laughs> so back, back here, in here, here, here we are in time, and I think it would be fair about time to say that time is the fire in which we burn. Solomon, with, with all of his activities, he's not satisfied, it's just not enough. Why is that? Why is that? It just isn't enough. And even though, the reason, the answer is that it's not enough is because even though we're bound by our own mortality, we haven't been made for this. We were made for eternity. You and I were made for eternity. Look back at verse 10. I've seen the God-given tasks with which the sons of men are to be occupied. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, so in addition to, he has put eternity in their hearts. God has put eternity in our hearts. So here's a truth that's, that, that, that truth is actually unique about human beings. There's no other creature on earth there, there's no other species that has this characteristic that God has put eternity into our hearts. Maybe you've got a dog or a cat or a goldfish at home, you know. Does your animal ever tell you, you know, what's eternity going to be like, master? I mean, if you have a cat, it's for sure not asking that question. <laughs> your cat is just not thinking anything nice, you know. <laughs> There's Stormy over sitting. Can you picture Stormy sitting over in the corner? Your, stor your cat's Stormy. It's all black. I don't mean it's color. Anyway, it's just <laughs> mood is black. Thinking and asking the question, what happens if I die? I haven't been on cats for a while. I just need to, I just need to vent. 
There have been articles in the news lately about the fact, the fact, provable fact now, that dogs are smarter than cats. This is completely not in my message notes. I just want you to know, if you're a cat lover, you, have, you love a stupid animal. <laughs> okay. No, no. Your dog or your cat, they don't think about eternity. They think about scratch me, water, give me water, take me for a walk, where's the yarn ball? That's what they think about. But humans are different. We have this unique dissatisfaction. It's, it's this restlessness. So we search, there's got to be something more. And there's a whole field of study about that. I mean, uh, and, it, and it's, a, it's a study of truth about, the, about death called thanatology. If you're, if you're a student of nursing or um, if you go to college, you've probably seen courses on, offered on thanatology. It's a Greek word. It means thanatos. It's basically a study of death or what happens, what the beliefs are about what happens. And um, it comes from a Greek word, which actually is a, one of the Greek small g gods, thanatos. And um, why do we have this interest in death? Why is it? It's because God has put eternity into our hearts. We know there's something more. Tell me about it. I want to know. I want to know. It's the same reason your children ask you, at a very young age, they'll ask you questions about heaven. You know, Daddy, what's heaven's like? What, what, is, what's, what, what will we all do all, the, all day long? You know, um, I, I got some qu- quotes from some children, um, also off the internet, but... Um, a little boy named Cliff asked his parents, you know, up there in heaven, does, you know, does Jesus have to keep his room neat like I do? <laughs> I heard this one yesterday from one of my granddaughters, but I found it also on the net. You know, does heaven have a floor? <laughs> Think that through. If you're a four-year-old or a five-year-old and you've, you, your picture of heaven is up there, is there a floor? And I heard about one mother who said, you know, was smart enough to say, you know, I don't know, what do you think? And this little four, five-year-old named uh, Jenny, age four, thought about it, looked up at heaven and said, no, that doesn't look like there's a floor. Everybody, everybody must be on coat hangers. <laughs> Here's another one from a, 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 a nine-year-old girl named Heather who had heard this comment about glorified, you know, we're all going to have glorified bodies. What's that mean, mom? We're all going to look like Barbie? Age nine, people are creatures that are fascinated about what happens after we die. And verse 11 explains why God planted a seed within us. He put eternity in our hearts. And this is why a lot of people are interested in when you hear something on the TV or read in the news about near-death experience. A near-death experience, they're all basically similar in that you know, somebody, the typical one you'll hear of is somebody arrives in a hospital and they're in a bad situation and they experience some form of clinical death but not complete biological death. And, and they, 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 during that period of time, they leave their body and they float up over and they can see what's going on in the room and they hear the doctors talking and they're watching. And then at some point they get revived and they go back in their body and, you know, and they hear these things up. Um, what do we make of those stories? And I think we'll talk about that a little later in the series. But suffice it to say, God has put eternity in your heart. That's why you're even interested in those stories. And I, I know some people get annoyed when we talk about heaven at all. 
there are some that say, you know, you, you, you've heard this phrase, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And I, okay, I get that. Um, but I would contend that the people who are the most earthly good are those who are actually heavenly minded. C.S. Lewis, um, in response to that, that challenge about being too heavenly minded, here's what he said. If you read history, you'll find the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. You know, I think Solomon adds this to this. He said, if, you know, we, we were meant to aim at heaven. It's something God put in us. And for most human beings, we want there to be more to existence than this. I mean, um, and for the believer, it gets a lot better than this. Really, Terry? How much better? How is it better? I mean, how good is it? How, how can we know these things? And that brings us to um, this, that although we're bound by mortality and we're made for eternity, therefore, we long for certainty. We want to know what happens after we die. So Solomon, who asks all kinds of questions in this book, I think we can boil it down to two big questions that he's really asking. Question number one, where do we go? Where are we going after we die? And question number two, what do we gain? You know, what do we gain here and now, and what do we gain in the hereafter? Okay, so question number one, where are we going? Go to verse 21. It, it takes the form of a question. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 21. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So he begins this chapter by saying, I've observed there's, there's time to be born and a time to die. Now he's saying, where do we go when we die? He wants some certainty here. He's searching. And then verse 9, he says that statement. This is the end of our opening passage. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? First question is, where do we go? And the second question is, what do we gain? So now, follow me here, this pattern that's going on in this passage. Um, he makes these observations about all these predictable patterns, these, these balances in life. You know, you're born and you die. You, you scatter, you gather, and all that. kind of 28 different activities. There are 14 matched up with 14 others, right? There's like, like there's a positive and a minus of all of these, um, you know, and f- for everyone that, every positive activity that you encounter, there's a negative. And that leads, ends up with him with, be, he's bewildered. He's, verse 9, he's, he's bewildered. It, it's, it's just, what's gain? What's the, what's the benefit of all this? And then later, you'll read on, he uses the word vanity. Emptiness. What's the point? What's to be gained by all this stuff we're doing? This guy's longing for certainty. And the bulk of this whole book is this quest. Is this, he's on this search for certainty. Now, by the way, I'll just tell you that by the end of the book, he gets the right answer, okay? Just in case you, you like a happy ending. But, and here's the thing. God gives Solomon, you know, great wisdom. But at this season in his life, I don't know if he's having a midlife crisis or what's going on. He's stuck. The, the wise Solomon, and, and, and the truth is that if you were to talk to him today, you could confidently say to him, hey, 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 hey Solomon, sir, you can have answers to these questions. They're They're available. The thing is, though, Solomon, but not by just simply observation. It takes revelation 
for you to understand some of these answers. Because here's the problem, Solomon. I've been reading all this stuff you've been doing, and I notice that you're asking these questions, looking at life by observation and by experience only. Observation and experience are never going to be enough to get to the full answer here. You need something else. And that's something else that you need is God's revelation. But you can, get, you can know the answers. And I would say to everybody in this room today, you can know the answers that we're asking too. You can. Everybody wants certainty. You can know these. And the Bible is filled with these answers. Now, I, I think the most common thing that people will object, they'll say, well, how can you really know for sure what happens after you die? Well, there's lots of ways, but one of them is you can listen to somebody who's, who's been in eternity for a very, very long time and has revealed it to us, and that's where the Bible comes in. And I'm going to give you a couple of the objections, because in case you have them, I'll just answer them for you. I, you know, I like to give you the, the, the opposite viewpoint here, or the, the challenging viewpoint. You know, um, so I'll bring it up. Christians, you know, people say Christians can't really know for certain what happens after they die, because the Bible says, and they quote 1 Corinthians 2. Here it is. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And this is where they stop. And then they interpret that passage and they say, see, it's, it's so amazing, it's so wonderful, you can't really understand it or even describe it, so why are you even talking about heaven like you can? Eyes not seen, ears not heard, nor entered the heart of man. My answer to that question is always the same answer. Why'd you stop reading right there? Why'd you stop there? Read the very next verse. Let's get the whole thing in context. But as written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who loved him. Verse 10, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Your eyes haven't seen it. You can't observe it by looking. You can't find out by listening. You haven't, you haven't thought it up on your own in your own heart. You can't find this information out through those three methods. methods. But God reveals it to us through his spirit. This verse says the exact opposite of what some people will say, that you can't know. You can't really, you, you can't really, and, and, and I will admit it, you cannot know about heaven naturally by observation. But you can know it by revelation. God has revealed to us what it'll be like, and there are a lot of scriptures for that. There are a lot of scriptures. So other people are going to point to another passage where Paul is talking in 2 Corinthians and he's talking in this passage about a guy who's been caught up in heaven. And um, he sees some things. And the scripture there says in 2 Corinthians 12, you can look this up. And it says that the guy there heard words inexpressible. You know, words not lawful for a man to utter. It's an in interesting passage. In other words, this guy who was in heaven was forbidden to talk about what he saw. So let's say, look, Paul didn't write about it because God said, don't tell anybody. It's unlawful to even write this stuff down. Don't even talk about it. Okay. That's this one instance with this one guy. There are a lot of other examples of people being in heaven and different instructions from God. One, one really good one is John, the, 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 the apostle John who went to heaven and um, he had a prolonged visit there, and God specifically said, write this down. Don't change it, don't add to it, don't subtract. And now we have the book, The Revelation. So there's, there's an example that's a different one. We have 
both Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and the prophet Ezekiel give us glimpses into heaven in different times in, in the future. There are a lot of words spoken by um, Paul about our glorious body, our resurrected body, our incorruptible body, uh, things that are going to happen after death. So God, in, in, his, in his words, has explained a lot to us about what heaven is like. And yet, he hasn't done it in an exhaustive form. Okay, It's there, but it's not in great detail in an exhaustive. It's not completely and totally revealed. This is an example of something where we still see through a glass darkly. In fact, um, let's look back at our text, verse 11. God says as much. He says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Okay. I, I think that as much as God has already revealed, we're going to see some of what that is in the next weeks as we go into this. There's a lot of truth that is still undisclosed. And he's going to disclose it. God will disclose it to us in the future. Um, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I think there's going to be a lot of surprises in heaven. A lot. Let's just imagine, God forbid, today's your day and you keel over. All right? Okay. (laughs) Sorry, okay. Don't think that. Today's my day and I keel over. Hold on, honey, we'll be fine. (laughs) When I was probably, I don't know how old I was, I was probably nine or ten. My parents took our family to um, Southern California and one of the places that we went was a place I asked my dad to take us because he had been in the Navy, and in the Navy he had been down at Long Beach, California, and there was an amusement park there called the Pike. Okay? I know, anybody here ever been to the Pike when it was a deal? <laughs> My mom. Okay. And, and a few others. Okay, so there was a, there was a, um, there was a, uh, a roller coaster there called the Cyclone Racer. Big old wooden roller coaster. Pretty famous. It's torn down now. And my dad would talk about the Cyclone Racer, and it was kind of a scary deal. And... Um, big first hill. I just remember it was, you know, do you want to go on the cyclone racer tour? Yeah, I want to go. I'm just I'm trying to be brave. I was scared, mouth dry, spitless. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure part of the reason I was scared because of the things my dad said to me. Yeah, yeah, you know, you got to stay in your seat because you see those beams, this car is going to get going pretty fast and there have been more than one drunken sailor that stood up and had their head torn clean off. I mean, I'm looking up there for the teeth and the beams. <laughs> I'm not quite sure why I was scared to get on the roller coaster, but for some reason I was scared. We went on that thing, and I have to say, we went over that first hill, and I literally could not see the bottom. We were in the front car, and I remember sucking in air at the top of that hill, and I don't think I exhaled until I came to again. No, whatever. <laughs> I I literally sucked in, and I don't know I breathed much on that entire ride. I couldn't. (gasps) Rattling old wooden roller coaster. It was a blast. It really scared me. And here's why I'm telling you the story. I don't know if we'll breathe in heaven or not. I haven't studied that. Maybe we do. I don't know. It hasn't been an important enough topic for me to find out. But if we do, and the Lord calls you home in that moment to be be absent is to be present with the Lord in that moment 
I think that will be what your first breath will be like. <gasps> I don't think anybody is going to arrive in heaven and go, yeah, I read about that. <laughs> I think we're in for some great surprises. So I think we ought to live now in light of what we learn about this journey. Imagine if we lived our life with an eternal perspective. It would probably change our choices. It would change our choices about where we live. It would change our choices about what job we do. It would change our choices about who we marry. It would, it would, it would certainly ought to make us happier people. I'm not saying you're not happy. Charles Spurgeon, this uh, preacher from London, very notable preacher, one of my favorites to read old sermons. Um, he, they had, he, had a, he had a student's, a pastor's college there at his church. And he told his young students at this pastor's college, when you speak of heaven, let your faces light up and radiate with a heavenly gleam. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. And when you speak of hell, well then, your everyday face will work. <laughs> the only thing that satisfies us in this time prison that we walk in today is eternal, eternal things. The material things of our lives, although fun for a moment, they'll never really satisfy. They're never really enough because we're made for eternity. Eternal creatures need eternal things. That's why Jesus Christ said to every person who walks this earth, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There, there, is, there has to be a spiritual life inside of you that will carry you there. Back to where we started. If, if, if you could travel a thousand miles for a penny, so you could make a trip around the world for a quarter and 260 million would get you to the nearest star, how much would it cost to go to heaven? The answer is, this is not good works. It's not well-intentioned ideas, but it's only the death of God's perfect son is sufficient to pay the price. Only God can pay the price for your ultimate journey. And I want to offer that to you right now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that two things. You made the journey there impossible for us to accomplish on our own. Because if we were able to do it on our own, we could take credit for what we do. We could strut ourselves and, and, and say, I'm a good person. I've earned this. Give me what I deserve. And the truth is, none of us really want what we deserve. So Lord, thank you that you're wise enough to make it an impossible price for us to pay. Because you're a just God. But, but because you are loving, you decide to pay the price for us yourself. Thank you for that, Lord. So while we're praying and the Spirit of God is speaking to people saying, let me write your name in the Lamb's book of life, I would pause during this prayer and say to every soul within hearing, do you know your eternity will be in heaven? If you don't know that, settle that with God right now. And you don't do that by being a good person. You do that by allowing God to pay the impossible price by his son. And if you want to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you simply say, I, I recognize 
I can't be good enough. And I recognize God loves me enough that he's going to pay the price for me. So I open my heart to the one who would pay that price and say, be my savior too. You don't have to intellectualize this. You don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to know answers to all the questions except to submit your will to what the Spirit of God is actually saying to you right now. Come home, I love you. I want to write your name there. I want you with me in eternity. You make that decision. You believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. I'm telling you later you can do this or you can do it now. You can say, yes, I'm opening my heart to the King. That's all it takes. It's not a magical incantation. It's simply a spiritual conclusion and a miracle in the same moment. So Lord, you hear what's happening in hearts right now. We thank you, God, for this wonderful gift of eternal life that is made freely available to those who will call out on the name of Christ as Savior. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name.